0: Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Marlon Peterson grew up in Crown Heights, Brooklyn in the 1980s, raised by Trinidadian immigrants. Despite the routine violence in his neighborhood, Marlon became a high achieving and devout child. But in the aftermath of immense trauma, he participated in a robbery that resulted in two murders. And when he was 19, he was charged and later convicted and served 10 years in prison. During his incarceration, he devoted himself to anti-violence, activism, education, and prison abolition work. And his new book, Bird Uncaged, an abolitionist freedom song, Mr. Peterson challenges the typical redemption narrative and our assumptions about justice and proposes a shift from punishment to healing and an end to prisons. It's published by old Type Books and brings Marlon Peterson to our show now. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show today.
0: Oh, I think this is a really important book. Um, I should also mention that you're the founder of the Presidential Group, spelled P-R-E-C-E-D-E-N-T-I-L. Uh, which is a, a social justice consulting firm, the host of Decarcerated Pro Podcasts, and and, uh, and that Ebony magazine named you one of America's 100 most influential and inspiring leaders in the black community. You've come a long way since you were released from prison. Have you ever wondered what would your life would have been like if you hadn't engaged in that robbery?
1: Yeah, yeah, thanks for that question. I'm, I'm often asked that question. And of course, I think about it um, and we can never know. Right. We can never ultimately know. But I I think that's similar to what happened to me What I was able to do in prison. I think I would have grown up. I would have matured. I think I would have grown up. I think that would have happened if I had stayed home. But we could never truly know.
0: Hmm. Of course. Uh, What was the part of Crown Heights you grew up in like in the 1980s? Was there a large Trinidadian immigrant community there?
1: Well, it seemed like in my circle there was a lot of Trinidadians in my circle, and you know, because my family raised myself and my uh, my siblings, you know, we were cult- acculturated in that sort of in that sort of culture. But it was African American and Caribbean. That's that's what I saw hmm. my neighborhood as completely as neighborhood as, as African American Caribbean, but ultimately just black people.
0: You were the youngest of three children. How would you describe your childhood and your immediate family? Religious, yeah. Yeah, well, I say dividedly religious. Uh, my father
1: um, became a Jehovah's Witness uh, a year before I was born. And um, I had two older siblings who were about who are eight and 11 years older than me. So um, they didn't like hold on to religion like I was. I was born into the religion and my mother, um, who my father had, you know, my mother and father had been with each other since the mid 60s in Trinidad. Um, my mother never con- uh, converted to the religion, so I mean, I grew up very religious. My father and I had a religious bond, and and and, and that sort of thing. Um, and in my household, I mean, we 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 it was five of us, and when I became nine, it was six of us in a one-bedroom apartment, and mm. you know, and that's how we grew up. And you know, there was never any sort of. You know, like when people think about people who are incarcerated, who, 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 who went to prison, they think about a broken household and there's drugs and there's violence in the household and all those sort of things. Or a single mother, how, uh, uh, um, you know, that trope about the single black mother um, that gives a really convenient way of explaining incarceration. Mm-hmm. And my household was none of that. We had both parents, neither parent. There was no violence, drugs any of those sort of things in our household. But we lived in a community where all those things existed. Right. Um, and so, I mean, you know, so, yeah. And and that was how I was raised. In, and also in, 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 very, in a very, you know, in a very sort of like um, we were very, we were a quiet family. <laughs> you know, we weren't a loud family, we we're a quiet family. So you didn't if you didn't if you didn't know what if, 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 we weren't a family that was easily recognized in the neighborhood because we kind of kept to ourselves.
0: But you were an achiever. You were in the honor roll in elementary school and then what led you at one point in your childhood to make a, what you say is a conscious decision to shift, as you call it? I was definitely, you know,
1: I was definitely an honor roll student. I was a valedictorian in my grade school. I went to gifted and talented high junior high school, and wrote for, you know, neighborhood newspapers. Uh, I actually do a program that uh, Spike Lee had sponsored when I was a kid. Um, and then, but I grew up in a neighborhood where there's a lot of challenges for a black boy and black girl. So, I mean, everybody was hurting. So part of the way that hurt showed off is people hurt me. So I was robbed several times um, by, you know, by the being in school on my neighborhood jumped. But then, you know, when I was 14, when I was um, a freshman in high school, um, I was actually, you know, I write about this in the book, but I was raped at gunpoint. Um, cool. um, and, you know, that had taken by obviously, I mean, it would take any human being by surprise at any age, but definitely as a 14 year old child. Um, I didn't know how to react to it. I didn't have the words. I didn't know uh, how to articulate what happened. I thought I was I should have been tougher. I should have been strong. I should be able to fight him off. Um, All those things. And then, you know, in the book, I speak about cages and and there was a cage of like homophobia that also was also conditioned to sort of uh, Hmm. believe in. And so I also didn't tell anybody about it because I was in my mind, if I told somebody that a guy did this to me, that people would look at me in a certain way, they would think I was gay. And I, and and, and that, that other cage of homophobia prevented me from even telling anybody about it. So I didn't tell anybody about that until I was in prison, actually told my father about it. But you know, that just, that, that, that event that happened when I was 14, it, it completely changed how I wanted to interact in the world. Right. I mean, I saw myself as somebody who was being preyed upon by people uh, outside of my household. And for me, it was that, Oh, I have to figure out how to, I had to figure out how to survive this sort of environment. And, you know, I would say I didn't like, it didn't happen overnight. I didn't become this terrible guy. I wasn't become a drug dealer or, or thief or any of those sort of things. I just hung outside more. i sort of drifted away from, you know, school and books and wanting and caring about school um, and I really didn't know what I was doing. I just know that I didn't want those things to happen to me again, those negative things to me to happen again. So, you know, it, it I drifted. I like to say I drifted. It, I use the analogy of like, you know, if you are in a, at a beach and you're in the water, if you just stay in the water long enough, you realize like, Oh wow, look how far I am from the beach. Right. And it just sort of happened that way. By so by the time I was 18, I, you know, I was shot by a friend, a friend shot me by actually by a mistake, but I was shot. And by 19 I was facing the life sentence.
0: So you went from being in the honor roll in elementary school to barely graduating from high school. And uh, you've talked about how gun violence is related to underlying trauma. How does that relate to your, your personal story? Other, well, obviously you were shot that, that's, and you were also uh, raped on, on, uh, at gunpoint. So the guns were all around? I mean, once you walked
1: out of your apartment, guns were available, right? And that's still today, right? Guns were easily available. You know, the, the, the first time I think I ever purchased a gun with a friend, we bought it from a local corner store, a bodega, right? It wasn't hard. It wasn't difficult. We didn't have to call a million people. We just had to ask somebody and tell you, go here and then you get it. Um, all you just needed was a capital for it. Um, and it made sense, right? There are more guns than there are people in this country. So it made sense that guns are easy to get no matter where you want to get them and how old you are. Right. And, you know to think about it is that like um i often talk about a young person in a program i used to run some years ago had gave the analogy that guns are like sneakers you know you just got to decide which kind you want right and huh. he you know he said this to me just made me when i ran a program here in, in brooklyn actually just a program that sort of uh had young people organizing around that same board bodega, bodega where i bought a gun but I mean, it made sense to me. He said this in, in, in you know, maybe around 2013, 2012. This young boy said this to me, and I could look back into 1997, 96, 95, 90. You know, it yeah, it, it just mattered which one you wanted. It was easily available, and when you have people who are in this sort of concentrated, uh, traumatic environment, um, the, the option to try to the, the option for weapons and weaponry and violence, they're very you know, it's it's, it's very. It's very accessible, right? It's very accessible. And then you also have state violence. You know, I mean, it, the violence that that we saw growing up, or people see now, even right today. We think about Dante Wright in, in in Minnesota. Like these things are all interacting with young people on a daily basis, and it did with me when I was a kid.
0: It was at the time of stop and frisk. Did were you stopped a lot by the cops?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was. You know, it's funny when you asked that question um, because. It's not until when, you know, during the Bloomberg administration, when it became a huge advocacy against stopping Mm -hmm. Frisk, did I realize that it was that something was wrong about that. I thought that was just how it is. I thought that police harassing you and stopping you was just what that's that's the way police are. That's the way neighborhoods are. Right. I didn't I wasn't aware that that was that they were that that was an injustice. So, yeah, the first time I was stopped, I was. Uh, maybe about 15 with my nephew, who was nine years, eight years younger than me. And we were coming off a bus uh, from a bus uh, from a, a music practice. And uh, in the summertime, with short pants and T-shirts on, and we caught off a bus mm-hmm. to, go to go home, right? The bus stopped at the corner of our, our building, our apartment building. And uh, I'll never forget. And my nephew, who's now, you know, much older, but he remembers it to that day, too, where, you know, uh, uh, unmarked car of detectives, all white detectives pulled us over as we were walking towards our apartment and um, asked me to come up with my nephew at the time, said, yeah, I have weapons or drugs on you, uh, I mean weapons or drugs on you. And, and I remember my response was like, how could I? Look, like, we don't have, we have shorts so when I'm with a little child. Like, How could I have weapons or drugs on us? And I remember they didn't actually stop. They didn't frisk us, but they stopped us. Right. And to understand that stop and frisk is two components. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they asked us where we lived and we pointed to the building. And they said, well, let me make sure you go in the building. And they followed us until we walked into Ooh. our building. I was I'm a, I'm a minor and he's a child, you know. Well, did and, you, you know, see it in racial terms at the time? At that time, I did because I was aware of other things that were happening in like police violence, particularly like there was a you know, the, the you know, I was aware of like Rodney King. Right. I was aware mm-hmm. of. Uh, like Abner Louima, that you know the the, the Haitian immigrant mm-hmm. who harmed by police. So I was aware of it, and and I grew up in a neighborhood where police violence. At least let me say this: I think because even though I, I never saw a police act, a police officer at that point in time in my life, never saw a police officer actually hit somebody, hurt, harm somebody, shoot someone. We we were aware that police could do it. And all police we saw police as white people. I didn't see I didn't see a lot of black police anyway. So it just seemed like I definitely saw it in racialized terms. I mean, I was a teenager, and by the, and as a black person growing up in a neighborhood like mine and Crown Heights, you 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 quickly begin to understand the 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 racialization of your of your like your interactions
0: with society every day. It's not you don't have to go to school to figure that out. So did that lead to you acting out? You, you were arrested for jumping a, a subway turnstile. Had yeah. you been doing that a lot? Yeah. I mean, jumping, yeah. So jumping, I had hopped a turnstile
1: as a kid um, and I was arrested once. To save money
0: or just because that's what you did.
1: It was, it was, it was fun. It was, you know, to mm-hmm. me, it was fun. It was, it wasn't anything that, I mean, I didn't have money either, but it wasn't because I didn't have money. It was things that kids did, right? Kids were playing around being kids. Um, And in my eyes, I wasn't hurting anybody. I'm just hopping over the turnstile. Um, So what was the outcome
0: of that arrest?
1: um, I spent a day in jail. I spent a day in jail, and then I ended up having to do community service for it um, in order for it to uh, get off my record.
0: Um, That was a result of that. That was a year before the day in October 1999 that that changed your life forever
1: yeah that happened in nineteen ninety eight when i was arrested mm-hmm. for the um turnstile jumping and then um and that's that that i mean i thought that i would never want i would i never want to go to jail again In my mind i remember those mm-hmm. the clothes that I was arrested with for the turnstile jumping when i found when i came home that day i threw away those clothes sneakers included i said i don't want to have a, i don't want to have mm-hmm. those things around me i actually threw them away and thinking that was the last time that I'll ever be in that sort of situation um and you could say for what it's worth um I mean, I graduated from high school, even though barely going from my honor roll student to barely graduating, but I graduated from high school, enrolled in college, um, community college, um, ended up dropping out because I couldn't afford to pay for it. Um, and then I re-enrolled in a trade school, and I was about three months before, uh, from graduating from the trade school before uh, uh, when I would have gotten a, a certificate to be an HVAC technician. And um, three months before it happened is when I got arrested for my involvement in this uh a double homicide uh, that happened in manhattan
0: my guest on today's leonard lopede at large is marlon peterson who's written a book called bird on case has nothing to do with charlie parker uh, subtitled an abolitionist freedom song and it is published by bold type books this is wbai new york 99.5 fm and streaming live at wbai.org. So, you, um, you engage in this, uh, this robbery. How far in advance did you and your friends plan to pull the robbery? Uh, I think maybe uh,
1: the day before is when I found out about it. Hmm. <laughs> um, and you were to be, me, be the lookout? Yeah, I would be the lookout. I was supposed to be the lookout. And, you know, the, people think about these robberies like these are long, even in a question like how long did you plan it? It wasn't an elaborate scheme. It was a bunch of kids who had an idea of robbing a store. And I said, well, OK, I'm going to come along with the aisle, thinking that it's just a bunch of kids hanging out. Uh, obviously, I knew a robbery was going to happen. And I knew that weapons, I knew that, you know, the people I was with had guns. But in my mind, nobody was actually going to use guns, right? I had never been around. You know, that wasn't the sort of I knew people who used guns, but the people I was with that particular day, I was like, I didn't put them in that category who would actually use a gun. And a matter of fact, once again, that guns weren't something. Knowing somebody who had a gun wasn't some extraordinary like learning right somebody had a gun somebody had a gun that was just normal just like as i said earlier you know guns were like sneakers so i'm drawing up i'm painting that picture because i want people to understand that how easy it is to be involved in certain things when you're in certain
0: certain communities right and well you um, weren't armed but where were you when the four people were shot two of them go dying eventually
1: yeah yeah i was across the street i was in another store and we I always say, I don't know what my job is to look at what's supposed to be. Really? <laughs> I always say that. But I was across the street when it happened and, um, you know, I walked in the store and, uh, this is lower Manhattan. And within a couple of seconds of me being inside this other store, mm-hmm. gunshots ring out across the street mm-hmm. and I'm just as surprised as everybody else. Like what's happened. I mean, I, I knew they had guns, but in my mind, like, you know, I didn't, I just, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't compute. And mm-hmm. then, um, you know, I ended up going home with everybody. It was a, it was huge mayhem because people were running all over the, the, on that street in Manhattan that day, that evening, that five, six o'clock in the evening. And, um, I went home and then I ended up turning on the TV and saw that, sure. that that's when I learned what actually happened.
0: And you were that. How did they wind up uh, finding you? Somebody turn you in because you were charged with first degree murder initially. Yeah. I mean, we all were, there were five of us who were arrested, um,
1: and I was the last of the five. So uh, the police, through, you know, through, however, my co defendant one of my co, my, you know, other people in who participated in it, or who arrested for it, um, you know, told them I gave my name up and where I lived. And that's how the police got to me and arrested me.
0: You're, you're introduced from first degree. Uh, but how, what was your sentence, even though you were across the street? How much time did you wind up serving?
1: I, ter- I served a ter- so I was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Um, I ended up serving 10, 10 years and two months. Um, in seven right. days. In seven days, right. <laughs> yes, 10 years, two months. I read seven. your book. <laughs> <laughs> 10 years, two months, and seven days. Yeah. I don't want to miss those days. Actually, you know, I just <laughs> served every one of those days.
0: So, how long after you began serving did you realize that you wanted to further your education and, and turn your life around?
1: Well, here's the thing. I always wanted to further my education, right? I think, like, you know, as I had said, I, had, I was in school before at a local community college and I dropping out because I couldn't afford it. And then I re enrolled on my own volition into a trade school, right? So I wanted a career. Prison interrupted my, you know, in my stupid actions that day interrupted that. So when I was in, inside, I think as soon as I became aware that this is where I was going to be for a period of time, once I accepted that, School was, always, was it was I had always wanted to pursue my education and follow my education. So I mean, I didn't actually start it I actually and didn't enroll in college um, in prison until maybe uh, six, seven years into the sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I enrolled and got a degree in criminal justice. But I had always wanted to. And I came home and, you know, continued it again. So education, I mean, and the reason why I want to sort of give it that sort of context is because, you know, like, prison is not the thing that made me realize, like, oh, 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 snap, I want to have, I want to get a degree, or I want to pursue education. Like, that's something I've always wanted, but it was so many things happening around me that I couldn't see how that could
0: happen. You understand? Mm-hmm. Well, you got that degree in criminal justice, and I'm assuming that you became interested in criminal justice reform, social justice, because of the, the things you'd experienced in prison up to that point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean... I I studied prison while being in prison, and I don't think there's any better education than that, right? Um, And I saw all the injustices and atrocities that were happening to people in prison. And then I was able to have more insight into what was happening in my own community so I could reflect back on when the police first stopped and frisked me and understand that in a larger context of race and class and all those sort of things in this country. So, you know, so the work that I start, that I do now, or what I started doing after prison started inside which is why I started writing. I would interview other uh, people inside who were like unjustly con- innocent, who were innocent. I would write, you know, interview them and put their stories out there or just or try to send it out. Nobody would publish these things from in, in prison. But I knew that I had experienced certain things. I had seen certain things and I had the privilege that I was somebody who was who who could who, who was literate and could read and who could articulate things. You know, I, I you know, I, I was able to put my my like intellectual my academic aptitude from when I was a kid into practice when I was in prison, right? Show you like help.
0: That. Go ahead. Finish your
1: sentence. Finish your sentence. I'm sorry. Yeah yeah no problem yeah I was able to put it to use on 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 behalf of other people inside who didn't have the same you know aptitude that I had you know what I mean I understood that part of my reason in being there also in prison was to be able to sort of support other men inside.
0: And you helped prisoners prepare for release through one program. And then you began a program with 12 students from Vassar College, came into the prison to directly engage with 12 men from the facility. Um, what was the goal of that program? The program you're speaking of is, uh we, we named it Vassar
1: and Otisville. Otisville was the name of the, the prison I was in, mm-hmm. Vassar and Otisville, two communities, Bridget and Cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that prison, I mean, that program was actually, It's a derivative of a program that was started through uh, uh, through men at Green Haven back in 1978, 78, 79, as well as professor at Vassar College, a mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Larry Mamia. and that program. And when we when we sort of had our iteration of it, when I say we, I mean, the men along with me, who helped create it back in 2006, I believe our idea was this. We had we had access to vast students, to these students who were who, you know, undergraduate students, white, affluential, but who cared. And we had men inside who worked from that sort of ilk, but who also cared. And we wanted to use that opportunity to bring these two groups of people together to sort of speak about and investigate and interrogate law, other social justice issues. So we would have conversations, debates, dialogues from everything from affirmative action to uh, uh, to single sex, uh, to same sex marriages, to to uh, you know, we wanted yeah. to use the prison space as an opportunity to speak to the possibilities of people coming together, you know, on a peer led level. You know, one of the things that we were also intentional about doing was to make sure that, you know, because of the privilege of these students from Vassar College being, you know, because of the identity as you know white and affluent, mainly mostly affluent,ial their, their 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 presence can sometimes make people believe to de facto privilege. Like they know more, they have more. And I was very intentional about, no, these people have a certain, certain abilities and the people inside have certain abilities and we need to make sure that we're always on the same level, that there's no way that they think that they're better than us or we think vice versa. You know, i wanted to build ultimately, I mean, my allegiance is primarily to the men inside. And I wanted us, when I say us the men inside to be able to realize our own agency and our capacity to interact with people of any any, any, any space or any part of, uh, of our society.
0: But you were able to do this despite what you say uh, was a personal experience with the incarceration system that was hellish because of the emotional strains that it caused. Uh, things like officers infantilizing and dehumanizing inmates verbally and physically abusing them by using their authority. Uh, did any of that ever happen to you or did you just worry that it might? Oh, no, it always happened. It, it, was, it was, it happened all the time, particularly
1: running those programs. I think officers messed with me more or infantilized more, or at least attempted to more when I was involved with programming than prior, because the first half of my time inside, I didn't really get involved with much. Right. I was sort of just trying to understand how that place worked. But for the latter, I had the last five years or so, I was like, I want to be involved with programming and doing things. And it felt like when I got involved with program is when I became more of a threat to, to officers. you became a and troublemaker, I became a troublemaker. And I, you know, I'm proud of it. I'm happy for it. Right. And even back then I was happy for, I was proud of it. In so many ways, I knew I was doing something that had a, had a greater utility, you know, and, you know, I speak about it where in, you know, Couple of days before I was released, literally seven days, I think, or so before I was released, um, I had one of the one of the former VASA students. So you know, we had this program running for a while, so students would graduate and move on. And I kept in touch with one of the students, and they had sent me a um, a hoodie, a VASA College hoodie to go home with. It's I was going home in December. They sent me a hoodie to you know, so when I go home, I can change and 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 wear it. Um, the facility, the prison facility. Uh, thought that intercepted the, the 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 hoodie and thought that I was having some inappropriate relationship with a student. And because of that, they had um, they locked me into my cubicle. I couldn't go out, but they also took everything that I had in terms of what I wrote. Right. And for me, that was the most. Intrusive part of it, because um, throughout my incarceration, I had kept a journal, pretty pretty consistent journal for the ten years. I had so many letters I had written, and people wrote to me, and I kept those things. Were, I still have those things now, but at that time, when they thought I had was doing something with the student, they took all of it hmm. and they read through it. And I remember um, the sergeant, uh, the sergeant in the facility at that time, he said to me, um, "You know, we can't prove that you did anything." We read through everything. We can't prove it. But no, we know you did something. And and I wish I had more time with you because you had more time. We would lose you in this system. And in my mind, I was like, well, I mean, you have all the evidence. You have all (laughs) the evidence. Everything here is in front of you. And you don't want to believe all the evidence that I'm really just care about the program. And that's somebody who's saying, like, here, here's something. He's coming home, giving a warm sweater to go home in. That's all it was.
0: You know, complicating, um, complicating the situation, you say that no one ever thinks about how difficult it is for the person who committed the wrong to believe that they aren't forever wrong. So how was this something you were also coping with at the time or was that and have you ever been able to get beyond that feeling? Yeah, I mean, that's something I've 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 been coping with. I mean, I think I'm at
1: the point where now 11 years post incarceration that I've fully healed from. And that's why I can write this book. Why I call it a freedom song in so many ways, you know, but yeah, I think, you know, when you people don't, I don't think people really think about. People have consciences and even though people may act like it and, you know, there may be layers of trauma that prevent them from seeing it. We know when we have harmed somebody and we feel it. And I think, you know, prison, one of the things that prison does is it, it beats an into you that you're bad and that you're guilty yeah. and that you're wrong and you're not, and you're worthless. So when you're released, that doesn't go away. Like you haven't healed past that harm. So when you think about people who risk, you know, people who commit harm again, when they come home from prison, I just want people to think about for a second. Well, prison wasn't a place for them to deal with why they hurt and, for them, and it wasn't a place where they were able to get past the guilt of it. And I'll be clear. Um, I'm not saying that, obviously that the people who was hurt, the person who are the people who are hurt or harmed, particularly in my situation, should not be prioritized. And their and their healing should be prioritized without question. Full stop. I'm also saying that, you know, as a a society, if you want to really get better and heal as a society past harm, we need to create mechanisms where people who have committed wrongdoing or harm or transgressions to other people can heal past it because you don't heal past it, it weighs on you and you can repeat it in various ways to other people or, or to yourself. You know, I, th- I think about like a DMX. Right. And yeah. I think about him even in this moment, right, where he has he prison. He spent a great deal of his life in and out of jails. And those places, if you, in if you listen to his music, those places did nothing to help him get past his hurt whether the hurt he inflicted or the hurt that was inflicted upon him. Like he waited on, he lived on that. He had money, he traveled the world, he had all the fame and all that. But I just want to just sort of just use as a flashpoint, using him as an example, his life as an example that the, the, the carceral space, the jail, the prison served him no utility. It only hurt him more. And that's the thing that for me as a person, I've had to be able, you know, just thousands of dollars in therapy and <clears> family <throat> and friends that have helped me get past it. You know what I mean? But I want us to really think about that part of it, that part of it. Collectively, we want society to get better and we're not investing in people getting better. We shouldn't be surprised when harm also perpetuates.
0: Well, how difficult was it to adjust the outside world after you were released in 2009? I mean, you eventually wound up enrolling at NYU for a bachelor's degree in organizational behavior. And I'm assuming that they were a bit suspicious, concerned about your past.
1: Yeah, yeah. NYU. So I mean, the transition for me, I often say, and I thank my family for that. You know, it was seemingly transitionless, right? For one, because I spent so much time inside preparing other men for the release, I was re- I was also in so many ways preparing myself for it. So I came home, I had a plan, and I and I enacted that plan. And part of that plan was to re-enroll in college. And you know, NYU was one of the schools that I applied to and was accepted to. I was also accepted into Vassar College as well. But
0: you applied to Columbia.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing about that, excuse me, NYU was that I was accepted initially tentatively, tentatively um, uh, upon a conversation with certain people in within uh, within the university. And I remember thinking well, I don't know how many thousands of people get accepted to NYU every year, but I can't imagine them sitting down and interviewing everyone after they've been accepted. So anyhow, when I, I, I had to go to this meeting and it felt like a parole meeting for what it's worth. <laughs> but, you know, they were kind of like trying to figure out who I really was. Like, you know, like, what is it that you would really why do you really want to be here? Um, and talk a little bit more about your past. And by that at that time, I had only been home. A year and a half. I only been home a year and a half, and it felt like I had to explain myself why I wanted to get a higher education. There, you know, and at that time, you know, thankfully there's a lot of people who, a lot of organizations I've been a part of them who have fought to like ban the box, the meaning the question of did you, uh, you know, the felony question on college applications. but I had to fill that out and I had to explain that. And I had to re-explain it in person and in so many ways. I felt like I had to prove that I was worthy of wanting an education, even at this quote unquote elite university.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. freedom,
1: freedom, freedom, freedom. Freedom,
0: freedom, freedom, Sometimes Before I get back to my conversation with Marlon Peterson, I need to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 212-209-2950 to help keep this show coming to you throughout the week. Again, the number 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that is only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. And I'm happy to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now, We'll receive a free copy of the book that we are discussing, Bird Uncaged, an abolitionist freedom song by my guest Marlon Peterson. But no matter what level you're able to show your support for this show and this historic station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. So why not? take a stand by keeping this 100 percent independent listeners funded community radio station alive on the New York City dial. Uh, At WBAI, we don't take funding grants or corporate underwriting of any kind. There are no ads and no one tells us what kind of show we should or or can't do. And that's what's truly independent media really means. But uh, and if you like the sound of that. Why not help us keep it going? But please don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopita at large. To everyone who's already contributed to the station, thank you so much. And now I'm returning to my guest, Marlon Peterson, whose book, Bird Uncaged, An abolitionist Freedom Song, is published by Bold Type Books. Uh, What do you mean by, uh, what does it mean to be a prison abolitionist?
1: I think that we don't want prisons to exist. That's the simplest way to say it. We don't want prisons to exist. And we also don't want the need for prisons to exist. That's the second part that I think people often to leave out. Um, and you know, this is in the legacy of a lot of people who have been speaking about this for, for generations in terms of we don't want these things. Um, prisons don't make us better. Prison society doesn't, doesn't uh, retribution, which prisons successfully does, it successfully administers retribution but well, we also know that retribution alone doesn't make a society better. So when I say a prison abolition, excuse me, an abolitionist freedom song, I'm also speaking about the possibilities. One of the things that prison did, my experience in prison did for me, was to see the possi, you know, the po- the, the tremendous possibilities of people who have had an enormous and tremendous amount of trauma and pain. I've seen people do things, accomplish things, despite it all and despite prison, right? And I understand that, like, that there were. The interventions that they had gotten or the interventions that I had gotten, um, particularly the criminal justice intervention, is not what got us on the track to being better people. Right. When I speak about, you know, I go back to the trauma that I had as a young person that I write about in a book, that there were other interventions that could have happened. Now, of course, I didn't have to I didn't articulate or tell people anything about what had happened to me when I was a kid. I didn't tell anyone until I was an adult but what i am saying is that like the thing that happened to me as a child could have been i could have had proper interventions at that time if if teachers in my schools had spoken to me in a different way or got me support that i needed when when they knew somebody had hurt me or beat me um if i got different type of support then it's quite as a pretty good chance that I wouldn't have gotten going on to the path that I went to. We -hmm. can't know for sure. Like I always say, we can never know 100 percent sure. But it's a it's a it's a strong possibility. So when I speak about you know, when I I speak about it, when the community people speak about abolition um, as a way to move forward, as a way for freedom, particularly around black and brown folks, we're speaking about different ways of creating different types of interventions to prevent us from needing the jail and prison. Right. That's the part I think critics of abolition often forget. We're not saying that just close jails down and to the end of day. That is the end. We're saying that we want jails to close, prisons to close. We're also saying the same thing about policing as well. But we're also saying that we know we can create communities where we don't need those type of militaristic, harmful, traumatizing institutions.
0: You argue that without abolition as a destination, prison reform is a dishonest attempt at improving the human condition. So how would it work? And uh, what would we do with people who commit violent crimes like murder and rape? Shouldn't they be locked away? Here's the thing, right? We go always to the most extreme, right? Most people
1: in prison are not in prison for murder and rape. That's the first thing I want to say. The majority of two million people in Americans' prisons and jails are not there for murder and rape. Right. So we go to the most extreme oftentimes to sort of to sort of like knock down why this idea seems implausible. And what I'm saying is that, first of all, we can look at all the other types of things, all other crimes that people are that prison is set up for. And we can look at all those things and see that, like, wow, there's so many ways we can not, we can prevent people from being in this place. I'll just look at the most recent one thing about marijuana conviction. Ten years ago, fifteen years ago, marijuana—people going to jail for marijuana—was conditionally correct. Like we thought that made sense. Yeah, you should go to jail for because you shouldn't have drugs. We, weed was a drug. Marijuana was a drug, and it made sense that we filled up many jails and prisons with that thing. Now, suddenly, you know, particularly here in New York and different parts of the country, it is now become legalized, and somehow we realized that oh wow, we didn't need to have people in those places for that thing. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is that there are so many other things that people should not be in jail for. Let's tackle those things first. We'll get to the murder and the rape. We can get to that. Right. But let's get to all these other things. So the majority of people in prison are not there for that. When we start with the when we start with the most extreme, we're preventing us from really realizing the possibilities because you can't see past the extreme. Right. I wanted to see past the extreme, even in my case. Right. I think about my situation. What what convicted me was felony murder. Right. I didn't commit. I didn't actually rob somebody myself. I actually didn't, you know, I didn't go in the store. I didn't shoot anyone and do those things. And while I'm not absolving myself, my participation, my conscious participation in that act, I'm saying that initially I was facing the death penalty in New York at the time. New York, Pataki was the governor at the time. We still had the death penalty on 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 the books. And, and it's, still a de- it's still
0: on the books in many
1: states and many states. So a felony murder. And there are many people who are just like in my situation, who, in my case, are serving life or who have been executed for their role as being a lookout. Right. And I mean, mm-hmm. once again, I, in life, here's the thing, Leonard, in life you, you, you get to make your choices, but you don't get to choose your consequences. And I understand that. And I apply that to myself. But I also understand that these consequences that we have by no means uh, are balanced out particularly for certain groups of people in our country particularly for black and brown people huge swaths of people are in prison because they were with somebody who did a thing if that same rule is apply to the capital riots <laughs> i think our president should be in jail right but it only it doesn't apply it only applies in certain people because of uh for
0: many reasons that we we can also enumerate but you know so, so how should you have been punished for what you did? I mean, I realize that you probably were punished a lot more than you should have because you were across the street, even though uh, you knew that there was going to be a robbery. Uh, but how should you have been punished? And how should the, the, uh, the other guys involved in the crime, which led to four people being shot and two dying, how should they have been punished?
1: I'll stay away from answering the question in terms of like how I should have been punished. And the reason why I'm gonna say that because as I said just now, you know, in life, you get to choose your choices, but you don't get to make choose your consequences. And I understand that there are people who are alive today who are, who are, who are so associated who have been victimized, traumatized by that crime, who are survivors of it, or survivors of the family members or the people who were harmed, that would say, How dare you <clears throat> say what you should have gotten. So I'll stay away from that. Right? I'll stay away from what I'm saying what I should have gotten. I got what I got, and I accepted that. And I already, and I accepted that my responsibility for that role. What I am saying, though, and and, and I'm saying that because like there's laws in the books that say this is what should happen to somebody like me. What I am saying, though, one way to what we're rather ask the question that there are ways to shift the way the laws are written. There are ways to we should we should look at things like the felony robbery, the felony homicide statute on the books. We should look at that much differently. We should really investigate and interrogate that to see whether that is truly just in a way that is is, is acted out on, right? And in terms of the people who were with me, I mean, two of the people who are still serving sentences—they're serving life sentences, double life sentences, right? Um, and I don't know their stories. I think you know, in speaking about this, like I don't know—we, except for one of the people who was in the uh, who was arrested with me, I don't know the other people like that. We met two of them. I met the night before. We were just hanging out. And they were like, oh, "Let's go do this with each other, right?" I don't know their stories. I don't know what they deserve or don't deserve, right? But I, do, I can tell you this much: I don't believe anybody deserves to deserve deserves to die in a prison. I don't believe that, and and I don't, and I'm not saying anybody. I mean that universally. I don't mean I don't think anybody deserves to die in a jail or a prison.
0: So should they be on permanent parole? <laughs> permanent parole is a setup. <laughs> I
1: think of, you know, permanent parole is a hard way to live, right? Um, <laughs>
0: Right. Well, they have to be punished in some way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. And here's the thing. Why does punishment have to be permanent? Right. You know, maybe there is some level of parole that they deserve. It may be 10 years, 15 years, 25 years. I don't know. But why does it have to be permanent? Meaning why? Because they were also young. They were also like 20, I think, at the time. So why should they permanently be punished for something they did when they were 20? I know the converse to that argument is well the people who were who are permanently gone or families have to permanently deal with that trauma yes that's absolutely correct and i understand that and that's that's where you know we have to sort of be able to bring these communities together the people who are harmed and the people who are hurt right because i think that having the, we need to have people in dialogue with each other you know one of the things that i, I don't lay it out specifically in a book in terms of uh, notions of transformative justice or restorative justice. I don't, this book is not about laying that out. I think people wanna lay it out, you can look at somebody like a Mariam Kaba who lays that out very well um, in her in her most recent book, but also all her work. But there are other means that we can sort of interrogate to look at to see well, how can somebody else be held accountable? Because here's the thing, being held accountable and being punished are not one and the same. We conflate it because that's it just, it seems that way. Prison conflates accountability with punishment. I'm saying that we need to first distract, we need to separate the two and we can look, then we can sort of in a very caring and a very intentional way, look at what accountability 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 looks like in a way that is not furthering damage. Cause that's what we want. We don't want to further damage, right? I think about the young man, there's a, in Brooklyn uh, just last week and this a uh, 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 gentleman, It was a homicide, suicide, I forget what they call it. He Mm -hmm. killed his his girlfriend or wife and two children and then himself. One of the girls who were killed is a part of a program that I'm on the board of, New Yorkers Against Gun Violence. And he had served several, uh, at least two different stints in prison. Now, I don't know his story. I don't know his background emotionally and all those sort of things. What I am saying is, though, he had a certain intervention that he had a criminal justice intervention. And those criminal justice intervention did not prevent him from doing such an egregious act where he took the lives of two people and three people, including himself. Should he be given psychiatric treatment instead? Maybe. I mean, maybe. Maybe. I mean, I'm not a clinician. I'm not a mental health Mm -hmm. practitioner. But maybe I'm saying there are other options on the table. We don't we don't think that there are other options. Right. Prison is the only option we have. And if you do choose prison as the only option, well, you're going to get a lot of people in prison, right? It's like when I think about how available guns were when I was a kid or how available they are now. Well, if guns are the option, I'm going to choose that option. right? And we keep choosing prison. We choose one option. And the thing about it is we also know I'm not saying anything new to your audience. We know prisons harm. We know prisons hurt. We always know. We all laugh at the jokes. You know, don't drop the soap when you go there. Like mm-hmm. we may laugh and joke about that, but we know people get harmed there. Mm-hmm. We know that, but we sort of, it's almost like a cognitive dissonance. We're like, well, oh, well, it ain't me. So let it be.
0: My guest on today's London, located at large, is Marlon Peterson, who's written a book called Bird Uncaged, an abolitionist's freedom song. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. We don't have a heck of a lot more time left, but I want to cover a number of things. What impact do you think COVID-19, which has disproportionately affected low income communities of color, uh, has had uh, on uh, on the black community, uh, and uh, do you think that it, well, we do know that COVID-19 uh, prisons have been hit hard by the pandemic. Uh, so is that uh, something we should be really concerned about or should we be more concerned about uh, the murders by police of, of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others in the African-American community?
1: Yeah, we need, we need to be concerned about all of the above. I don't think it's an either or. Because they're all also related. What COVID nineteen was uncover, or even not, I'm saying uncover, it illuminated many of the the disparities in the Black and Brown community when it comes to health, right, and uh, or public health, right, and you know, gun violence for one thing is a public health issue. is one of the public health issues as well as you know, President Biden just uh, made in statements last week. I don't think we need to separate the two. I think they're all connected. Um, what, what happens? there was a, I had a mentor of mine. Actually, he had a show on this, on this, on this very station, WBI, Eddie Ellis. Uh-huh. And he would say, uh, there are no prison problems, they're only community problems. And in it, of course, he wasn't saying that, you know, there aren't things that aren't nuanced specific to the carceral place, to, to prisons and jails in the South. But he, what he was saying ultimately was that the problems that we see inside of jails and prisons, where there's a concentrated environment of concentrated harm, it's just mirroring what's happening outside. That's already happening here. We're only just bringing it it into a certain place where we feel we can control it more. But it's happening out here. So when we think about what's happening, in COVID nineteen, or a regard or what has happened is, uh, over the last year, particularly around the uptick in violence, right? That was, you know, one of the biggest parts of the news last year, where there's an uptick in violence in certain cities. To me, it didn't surprise me. You know young people are experiencing the trauma associated with COVID-19 too. They may not be the ones dying, but they're seeing their aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents just getting sick, dying, doing all these hours at the hospital. They, they don't have as much money in a home that they may have had before. They're cooped up in a household that's already cramped. Like there's other, you know, there's other health issues that's already happening that, that they, that are now being illuminated because of COVID-19. So it made sense to me that it had been an uptick in violence. Right. And then when we think about, the violence, the police, the most recent. I don't know how to say this anymore. Right. But we see the most the most recent news of police violence. Young people take that on, too. Right. The people who we who the, the people who who feed the prisons of Moses, people who are young adults. They feel they, they see that, too. I think we think that, well, you know, they, they're not paying attention to it. No, they may not but they may not be reading all the books that we're reading or listening to all the podcasts that we may listen to or listen to the Leonard page show, right? But they are keenly aware. Because I was a kid who was keenly aware that, oh, wow, the police could do that to me, too. And hmm. no matter what, the police see me as a crook. They already see me. I gave you an example when I was a child with my nephew who was eight. Oh, they already see me as a crook. Already, so it doesn't matter if I do something that proves them right in the first place, right? And I might not seem like the best type of logic, but it is isn't it, It's it's the air that we breathe. Like all of it is connected. When we think about all the violence that's happening in this country, even in the first four months of this year, from the Capitol riots to now Dante right in Minneapolis. Like we think about all these things; these things are happening to yeah. us, black and brown
0: people. Dante. That was yesterday the the murder, of the, the police killing in in Minneapolis, uh, yesterday that you're talking about. Yeah. yeah uh, they yeah. continue. There seems to be at least one a week. Um, you argue that it's important to understand the crimes committed by people of color through a political lens. Absolutely. But uh, but aren't there also uh, uh, disparities? Uh, American prison populations have long been characterized by racial and ethnic disparities um and I, and i think that it also follows uh in when when uh there's a, a matters of probation parole jail and and uh, and sentencing yeah i mean it is that too complicated a question i'm sorry no, no
1: it's always it's absolutely not too complicated a question and i, I yes absolutely we should see these things through a political lens just the way i described the way COVID-19 impacted people in a certain communities, the way we see state violence, we can't separate the, the, the way that we harm each other in our communities, we can't separate, we can't divorce it from what's happening in the nation around us. We live in this nation and we're all impacted by it, right? I think when we don't look at it through a political lens or through political analysis, we're doing a disservice and we're sort of depriving people in our communities, black and brown communities of like a full biography we, you know, I don't want to separate that. When we have people who do mass shootings, particularly when white men do mass shootings, we give them a biography. We may not like them, we may hate them, but we give them a biography. We just tell you why it happened to them, right? We, we say that, well, you know, we go even deeper and we say, well, you know, people from these sort of rural communities or what have you, they feel like they're left out. They feel like they're not, they're not being heard. We automatically give them a political analysis. We afford them full biography. But when it happens in Chicago or Inglewood or Crown Heights or wherever it happens at, when it's a black or brown neighborhood, you say
0: it's just gang violence. No, There's also another violence. political, I'm sorry, there's another political aspect to it. Uh, some politicians uh, say that Black Lives Matter protests are comparable to what happened in the, the Capitol building on January 6th.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Black people would never storm the Capitol like that without weighing our without understanding that our lives would be taken away. Right? It's not the same thing. And I think anybody that does that is obtuse and they're also, I would say, somewhat racist or just very ahistorical, right? There's no way you compare the two. But black people, black people are responding to everyday, whether it be microaggressions or police killings. But what these folks were doing at the Capitol, they were one. They were, they were performing a coup. They felt so free in this nation that they could perform a coup, right? They can act it out. They can do this with 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 with. with they could dramatize this in a way that they knew that they wouldn't be harmed. Yes, one of them was killed. I understand that. But for the most part. Even what happened with the, the Senate after and the Senate sort of deciding to, to have a not guilty on impeachment with Trump. That was a perfect example of why we could not compare what happened to Black Lives Matter or what Black Lives Matter, or just Black people uprising and asserting their voice. We can't com- we can't conflate that with what white folks doing on a capital building. I think that's wrong it's ahistorical. They have the government backing. The government backed what they did for what it's worth. The government backed it. They said it was not connected to whiteness, white supremacy, it was not connected to this president's former president's statements. They had the backing, they had a defense of the nation. What I'm saying is that we can't even get, we can't even survive a traffic stop.
0: Well, unfortunately we've run out of time. But my great thanks to Marlon Peterson, uh, who also won a SARS fellowship in 2015 and is the co-founder of Spread Mass Love with Piper Anderson. Uh, I would have loved to have been able to talk about that, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Uh, People can learn a lot about you by reading the book that we've been discussing, Bird Uncaged, An Abolitionist's Freedom Song which is published by Bold Type Books. It's been a great pleasure having you on our show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Todd McGovern for preparing today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you get your podcasts on iTunes, we would love it if you'd leave a review or rating, which is a great way to encourage others to discover our program. If you'd like to send me a question, a comment, or just want to say hello, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org spelled L-O-P-A-T-E a couple of listeners have misspelled it. Before I sign off, I'd like to ask you one last time for your for you to support WBAI if you value the kind of informative in-depth interviews we bring you on the show please go right now to give2wbai.org to or call 516-620-3602 to ensure that this show can continue coming to you, and as I mentioned at the half, a great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. Their listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Loped at large during today's show, that means very soon um, will receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing. Bird Uncaged, an abolitionist freedom song by my guest Marlon Peterson. But please be sure to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate uh, at large, and and thanks. Again, the number is 212-209-2950 go online to give to wbiorg We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us for Wednesday's show when poet, novelist, essayist, Critic Philip Lopate will discuss a new collection of writing he's edited called The Golden Age of the American Essay, 1945 to 1970. We'll see you then.